Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Our call to confession this morning is from Proverbs chapter 19, verse 16. He who keeps the commandment keeps his soul, but he who is careless of his ways will die. This is another simple, straightforward proverb. The world we live in, which God has created, is a world in which laws work. What goes up must come down. Gravity doesn't take a break because somebody decides they want to jump off a cliff. Of course, the proverb is not talking about gravity, but the correlation works because God has given moral laws and instructions in how to live. These laws have corresponding consequences, which our proverb teaches. Namely, if you want to know how to preserve your soul and keep your life, then you do well to keep the commandment, which Jesus kindly sums up for us in the New Testament. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. The word careless in our proverb, he who is careless of his ways will die, that word is better translated, he who despises his ways. And what that means is that if you don't pay attention to what you're doing, or consider God's teaching about how to live, you will die. Your soul is in peril. Now this is true on multiple levels. Again with the cliff illustration. If you're driving towards a cliff and you don't stop or change course, you will die. The law of gravity will take care of that for you. But the reality is that in life, in this life, we navigate many treacherous spiritual trails. And there are many dangers we must escape. I'm reminded of Christian in the Pilgrim's Progress. The way is easy and the path is broad, which leads down to destruction. It is very easy to lose your soul and it is easy to die. You simply need to do nothing. Be careless of your way. Water always follows the path of least resistance and it flows downhill. But straight is the way and narrow the gate that leads to life. If we want to stay on that path, we must heed the road signs, which means keep the commandment, for then you will keep your soul. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins. And if you're willing and able, please beat Neil as we confess our sins. Today we find ourselves in the first division of the first section of the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, last week I outlined there were four sections in the book. The first section is from chapter 1, verse 1, to chapter 2, verse 26. And the, the, the point of that section is to tell us about man's inability to achieve satisfaction on his own. This division of the book is, or is, this section of the book is divided up into three divisions. The first one is our text this morning, chapter 1, verses 2 to 14. And it's all about the repetitive and cyclical and circular nature of nature. 
how God created the world in such a way that everything repeats itself. And, and, and Solomon is trying to point out the vanity in the repetition. The second section is Solomon's experience proves that man's experience is vain. And that's chapter 1, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 11. There's some overlap in the sections. And the last division of this section is chapter 2, verse 12, to chapter 2, verse 26, where Solomon exercises the limits of man's wisdom. And he embraces death, hatred, despair, injustice, and sorrow. And, and as he can, considers each one of those things of man's experience it, with man's wisdom, he concludes that God is the source of wisdom, knowledge, and joy, but he's the only one who can make sense out of all the senselessness that is our existence. But today we tackle the first of these divisions, which I said was about the repetitive and cyclical and circular nature of our existence. And as you can see in your bulletins, chapter 1, verses 2 to 14, in the outline is a chiasm. You see how it, 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 it builds to the center and it comes back out. And there's correlation in between each of the sections. So let's, let's consider the chiasm now. First we see in, in section A the, the vanity of life under the sun. Solomon opens us and closes us with this notion. He says, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In this section, in this section, he opens us and closes us with that. He does the same thing in the next section and the next section. So every section of the book is open and closed with the vanity of life. It's all vain. It's the main thesis of the book. It's the book starts with vanity and it ends with vanity. And so, as we expect, this section starts and ends that way. The point of this is that the preacher, the Kohelet, Solomon, is in the process of defining what he means by vanity, or havel, that Hebrew word, havel. In each of these sections, he's trying to explain what he means by that. If all is vanity, then what is vanity? If you define anything as everything, then whatever that anything is, it has no real meaning. So you have to explain what you mean by it. So if he says everything is vanity, well, what does that mean? So each one of these sections is drawing out a clear picture about what he's saying about vanity. So pay attention today to what Solomon means by vanity in today's text, in this section. In the section B of our chiasm, we see the next thing is that Solomon questions whether or not men enjoy profit from their work. In, in verse 3 we read, What profit has a man from all his labor in which he, to in which he toils under the sun? And in verse 13, this burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. It's, it's a task, it's an evil task, it's a burdensome task, and, and it's just exercise. So what's the advantage that man has? That's the question that, Paul, that Solomon asks in that, in that section B. So what profit do they enjoy? We do see in verse 13 that, that men are supposed to work. It is a God-given task. It is, it's something that God tells us we must do. But that task is burdensome, verse 13, and it's toil, verse 3. And he starts out questioning the ultimate value of all of it. 
in the section C of our Chiasm, in verse 4, Solomon starts to flesh out the vanity of man's toil. He says, man's toil is vain because we're temporary. In verse 4, Solomon says that man is temporary. Generation comes, one generation passes away, another one comes, and the, but the earth remains forever. It's like, the earth remains forever, but generations come and go. So, we're pilgrims. And this is reiterated in verses 10 through 11. Nothing is new, old things are forgotten, and future generations will forget what now is. So if men are temporary and their works are forgotten, then isn't it all vain? What's the point? In section D in verses 5 and 6, we see that not only are men temporal, even the natural world seems to go in circles. The sun and the wind go round and round, and they're whirling about. Verse 9 affirms that everything under the sun goes through these cycles. That which has been is what will be. That which is done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. In section E, verse, verse 7, in the last part of, of uh, verse 8, we see the insatiable appetite of the sea. And in verse 8, we the likewise insatiable appetite of our senses. In the pursuit of life on this planet, you're never done. The sea is never filled up. You never arrive. You never get there. There's always one more hill to look over. There's always one more enemy to conquer. There's always one more time to hear your wife whisper in your ear, I love you. You never get tired of it. As long as you're alive here on this earth, there's, there's, there's always need for more. Life is appetite. Life is the journey. And finally, at the heart of our chiasm, the first half of verse 8, we read that all things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. And this is a little bit enigmatic. What's he mean by that? All things are full of labor. Man cannot express it. If, I mean, that's, it's the center of his chiasm. It's the point of his argument here. What, what is he talking about? Well, first let's jump into a short discussion of words and translation here. The word Hebrew word davar is the word translated as things. Davar. Um, so he says, all davar are full of labor. Well, it, that word is usually translated as word or words or as sayings, uh, speaking. And so, so it has the, it's, it's translated in the, in the Septuagint as logos. In, in Greek, the word there is logos, the logos. And what he's saying is, all logos are full of labor. And this makes particular sense when we consider Genesis 1. That God spoke all things into existence, so that the material of which our world exists and consists is quite accurately depicted as words. All things are God's words. They're a revelation from God. They, when things exist, they, are, they exist because God spoke them. They are words. So, so what he's saying there is that all things are full of labor. Now, that again, full of labor, is that, that's three words in English. It's only one word in Hebrew. But the word means wearisome. It means heavy, 
difficult, trouble. So in English, a wooden translation would say that all words are wearisome. Man doesn't have the power to speak it. Now that makes a little more sense of, our, of just the sentence there. That all things are full of labor, man cannot express it. Doesn't have the sense of the, I mean, if, if things are words, then it makes sense that man would try to speak them. Man would try to, to, to speak them. But, but our English, unfortunately, doesn't have the same, the same flexibility. So if we say all words are burdensome or wearisome, and, 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 but words, by, by understanding words, we understand all of God's creation is challenging for us, and man is unable to speak it. And that's important because when you name something, that gives you control over it. That gives you power over it. Names are powerful. And, and what the whole point of this section here is that man, man's trying to name the world. Man's, man's seeking to, to, to give definition to everything around him. But what Solomon's point here is, is it's difficult because it's beyond us. We're, we're temporary. Things are just going in circles and we're running around on the, on the surface of this, this, this sphere called the earth. And then we die and nobody remembers us. So what good is all that trying to name things and, and all that work we do in this world? That was the work that God gave to Adam. He said, go and name all the animals. But what Solomon's saying is that all of that work is wearisome. All things are full of labor. And man can't do it. We cannot express it. So the point of this here is that man, men are finite and we are so finite that we cannot define God's finite creation. God created the world. He, he, he finished creating the world. He said it's good. And it is finite. Though, consider that. Man is finite but so is the creation. But it's our God is infinite, and His creation is so much beyond us that even though it's finite, we can't define it. There's always more to study, more to learn, more to, no more to figure out about this world. More work to do, more weeds to pull, more food to grow. So, in fact, going back to E, not only is life appetite, it's inexhaustible. It, we never finish trying to figure out more because there's always more to learn. And it's inexhaustible. We will not ever be able to, to arrive there. It's like trying to squeeze an ocean into a cup. Or trying to squeeze God into a man. And you can't do it. Man cannot do it. So why do we even try? What's the point of man's labor? And what's the point of all the endless cycles? Well, let's consider the endless cycles for a bit. And this is something we all experience. We read regularly, and, and, and all of us, it's undeniable, we experience this. It's a real problem. In fact, the whole point of certain Eastern religions is to achieve the escape from the endless cycles. The attempt to achieve enlightenment or nirvana or an ultimate 
Peace is due to the chaos that's easily recognized in our world. You go out there and you see it's all cycles. It's all cycles. It's the sun goes around and around. Every morning you come up and the sun is new. Every, every, every day you look out and somebody's dying and somebody's being born. It's all cycles. So that's a problem we have to, we have to, to uh, overcome. Our text today points to the never-ending cycles of generations. In verses 3 and 11, the prophet has a, 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 one generation passes away and another generation comes. And in verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of things that are come are to come by those who will come after, by the next generation. They won't remember. Notice how all the works of men are temporary. They're doomed to be destroyed and repeated. What it all amounts to is building sandcastles on the seashore and having the waves of time and the elements return the beach to its natural state. One generation passes away and another generation comes, but the earth abides forever. More pointedly, it's visible in our day-to-day -day lives. You make the bed in the morning, and guess what you have to do tomorrow morning? You need to make the bed again. You wash the dishes, and guess what? At the next meal, you have to wash the dishes again. The same goes for the laundry, or filling the gas tank, or mowing the lawn. It all has to be done over and over and over again. Even in things that last longer, you still have to replace your car when it wears out. Or even if even the roof, 20 years later, you're, you're re-roofing the house again. You show up at work every day and you work long and hard hours. And at the end of a lifetime of all that work, there's a whole other lifetime of work just waiting to be done by the next guy. And finally, in our lifetimes, we're given the work of replacing ourselves. We have children and we teach them our ways. But when we get old, we die. And we are remembered for a time by our children or grandchildren, but that's only for a time. To prove it, we need only consider how well do we remember our fathers, our grandfathers, our great-grandfathers. Some of us remember our great-grandfathers. Some of us even can go back to our great-great-grandfathers. We actually, some of us know stories of our great-great-great-grandfathers. But you don't have to go back very far, and we don't remember. We really haven't got that far back in history. You go to our four great-grandfathers. But it's already really fuzzy. You don't know what their life was like. You don't know what they did. You don't know where they lived. Or you don't know when they got married. Or what challenges they faced in their job. You don't know if, if he chopped his thumb off because he was swinging an axe. Or you just don't know the story. You don't remember it. It's all temporary. It was important to him when he chopped his thumb off. But we don't remember it. We wouldn't be here if it wasn't for him. But we are, and we don't remember him. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, who was not God, because Jesus was the greater than Solomon, but he was God. Solomon draws attention to something very important here. He points out the shortness of man's life on earth. And this is not something that is forgotten in the New Testament. It's brought up again in the New Testament. In James 1, verse 9 to 11, 
Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower fails and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So rich men are seemingly important. And yet James is comparing the rich men to the flower that passes away. In James 4, verses 13 to 14. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city. Spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Our plans are not substantial. We are vapor. And if we are vapor, then our plans are vapor. Peter also, in chapter 1, 1 Peter 1, verses 24 and 25, he says, All flesh is as grass. He's quoting Isaiah 40 here. But it fits into his argument. All flesh is as grass. The glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower fades away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word which by the gospel which was preached to you. So men are like grass. They're like a flower. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Men are like a vapor. And this is certainly one aspect of the vanity that Solomon is talking about in this section. He says vanity of vanities at the beginning. He says vanity, it's all vanity at the end. The temporariness of our existence on this earth is vain. We are vapor. The natural world, likewise, falls. It fails to indicate any real purpose for man. So men come and go. But if you look at the natural world, it, it also is on, on the same circuits. The circuits of the sun and the wind, the rivers, they all seem to say that the earth is timeless and it doesn't care one iota about the busy little men running in circles on its surface. Verses 5 to 7. The sun also rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it arose. The wind goes toward the south and turns around to the north. The wind rolls about continually and comes again on its circuit. They don't care. God is doing what he's doing in the world. It's his creation. He created the sun. He created the winds. And, and it all happens. And despite what we do, we can try and make a difference here and there in little ways, but it's all very minuscule in comparison to what God is doing. So vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. Has he proved his point yet? The endless repetitions and cycles in our world certainly do raise the question. Why do we try that? What's the point of this God-given task? Why all the labor? Why the toil? Why the work? To what avail? What profit is it to us? Why, and why is the task burdensome in the first place? So let's consider the burdensome task. And first, let's look at what our text has to say about the nature of the task. In verse 13, the Hebrew word for task is only used in the book of Ecclesiastes in Hebrew. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. 
This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. So the word for task there, that, that noun, is only used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the word is related to the word translated as exercised in our book. So by which they may be exercised. It's, it, those two, it's a verb and it's a noun. It's, it's a noun form of that verb. But even the translation of, of, of by which they may be exercised is irregular for that word. It's translated as trouble in the Septuagint. God has given to the sons of man an evil trouble or a distraction. God has, God has given to the sons of men an evil trouble, an evil distraction to be troubled with. He gives them trouble to be troubled with. And, you may have noticed that I said the, 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 the word evil instead of burdensome there. The word burdensome isn't as sinister as evil. But that brings us to the term burdensome. The term burdensome in Ecclesiastes, in verse 13 here, this burdensome task is actually the exact same word that the Hebrew uses everywhere else for bad, evil, or wicked. So the task that God has men answer for, and that's, that's what that word, to be exercised, most of the time when it's used in the rest of the, New, in the, rest of the Old Testament, it's, it's saying, give an answer, or testify, testify, or answer. So the task, or the job, the answer that God is requiring of man, the evil answer that God is requiring of him, the evil response, the work that he's given to him, by which he answers, by which he is troubled, by which God exercises us. Some people think of exercises as, as real evil. and In this sense, in this case, it is. That's what it's, it's an evil thing here. I don't think about, about an exercise in general. Um, but... So God, the, the task that God has men answering for, that God exercises men by, is truly wicked. And so what is the task? I mean, he, that's a good question. What is he, what's Solomon talking about here? Well, he told us at the beginning of verse 13. He tells us, Solomon was king in Jerusalem, and he set his heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. He set his heart to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. And then he says, this burdensome task, that's the job that I'm working on. And it's an evil task. To seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. That's what Solomon set himself to do. Now why did Solomon set himself to do that? Why did Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, decide, this is what I'm going to do. I am going to set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom everything that happens under the sky. Well, this is why. It's God commanded him to. In Genesis 1, verses 27 and 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of man, God, in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And here's the creation mandate. And then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion 
over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God designed men to rule on the earth. God created man to have dominion over everything under the sun, everything under the heavens. Men were created to rule and to seek out and conquer the ends of the earth. And that's why Solomon starts his explanation of what he's doing. I was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I was king. I was ruling. And that's why I set my heart to do what God told me to do, which was to seek and search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. Okay, so that's the job. We're to have dominion. Now, why is the task evil? Why is it such a burden? Why is it so hard? Why? Why, why, why? That's the question that men ask. Why? And it's because of the curse after the fall. Man sinned. And that sin brought a consequence. And here's the consequence. Then to Adam, God said... Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So man sinned, and he was, the ground was cursed because of man's sin. Meaning that man's job of having dominion over the ground is now a burdensome task. It's an evil work. So what's the result of all this? What, the task that we have and the fact that it's evil, what is the result of that? The result is vanity. We search and search, and we seek to have dominion and fulfill our duty, and we die in the process. By the sweat of our brows we eat. We seek new things. We seek fame and honor and glory. That's something of dominion. That's something of kings. There are cultures that are built on these ideas, but we are doomed to death because of sin, and thus, generation comes, a generation goes, and we are forgotten. We're incapable of exhausting God's revelation. Our eyes see, and our ears hear, but we're here for such a short time that we barely scratch the surface of knowledge. And on top of all of that, we're weighed down by the evil that is evident all around us. More on that in the weeks to come. We truly do not have we truly do have an evil task. And God is exercising us. He wants us to answer. And this is the great question, oh man. We all want to ask God to justify himself because we suffer. What's it all mean, we say? And God responds. Tell me, you who think you get to ask the questions. Turn to Job chapter 38. Verses 1 to 3, we see that God says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now bring me, prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. 
God asks the questions. We don't. God gives us a task, an evil task, and he makes us answer. We're answering because we questioned him right at the beginning. God gave him a simple command, don't eat of that tree. And Adam thought that he would listen to his wife and eat the apple or pear or whatever it was, the fruit. And God says, now you answer me. What do you think you get to ask me why you're not like me? Then we see in verses 4 through 7 that the earth abides forever. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? I tell, tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Where were you, Job? The earth abides forever. You don't ask the questions. I made it. Verses 8 through 11, we see that the sea can't be the sea that can't be satisfied, God knows how to satisfy it. Or who shut in the doors, the sea with doors, when it burst, burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and thick darkness its swaddling band, when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, This far you may come, but no farther. And here your proud ways must stop. Man can't do that to the sea. Sure, we can try. And the Dutch do it. They, they, they carve out little sections and they pump the water out and they, they, they farm it for a while. But it's nothing like the boundaries that God sets for the sea. The cliffs that the, the waves crash against all around the world. Verses 12 to 15, we see the, the sun whose circuit never ends. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? That it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It takes on form like clay under a seal. And then it stands out like a garment from the wicked. Their light is withheld and the upraised arm is broken. And the chapter goes on from there till we get to chapter 40. For God demands an answer again. Moreover, the Lord turned answered Job. This is chapter 40, verses 1 to 7. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, This is important. And this is what we have to learn here. Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Job says, I'm not going to answer. And God says, no, you must answer. And, he, and then, he, then he pummels him again with... The story is of Leviathan and the weakness of man. And finally, in chapter 42, verses 1 to 6, Job answers God. And this is the only answer that's, that's just, that's right. And Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, 
Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, and you shall answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, and now my eye sees you. Therefore I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes. This is the only possible answer. Men suffer. All things are full of labor. They're wearisome. Man cannot express it. And the task is evil because we are evil. Leaving us with no answer but repentance. Everything under the sun is vain and grasping for the wind. As we draw to the close of our study in this text, and we've seen all the vanity to be experienced in this existence, consider two things. First, wisdom is what drove Solomon to obey the commandment, the creation mandate. Even though he determines that everything is vanity, wisdom makes Solomon very busy with all of the vanity. Solomon is very busy with all of the vanity. He was active in this earth. He had dominion. He was wise. He was a king. He had, he had stuff. He had women and servants. We'll get into that later. But Solomon was very busy in all the vanity. And wisdom is what drove him to be busy in the vanity. So surely there is some purpose to be found in all the vanity. Surely there must. That's the first thing I want you to consider. The second thing I want you to consider is that God is here, even at the outset of Ecclesiastes. In verse 13, we read, I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that is done under heaven. This burdensome task God has given to the sons of man by which they may be exercised. God is here even at the outset of Ecclesiastes. In, in verse 13, wisdom and labor by which men may be exercised are given by God. In fact, God is the only thing that Solomon talks about that is not under the sun. He keeps talking about everything under the sun, but God is not under the sun. God is always honored in this book, and he is revealed more and more as Solomon's argument progresses. Today we see that while man's time here is short, and there's nothing new on the earth and their works are vain, their business is from God. Their business is from God. The creation man, God created us and he gave us a job. And it's from God. And surely everything here is vain, but God is not vain. So... As we continue studying in Ecclesiastes, we're going to see what that means. If our business is from God and everything under the, and we are under the sun and everything is under the sun, our business is not vain. The work, the answer that we God, God wants from us, what He exercises us with, it's not vain. There's a point to all of it. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray.
passages in Job. And God questioned him. Job's response was utter and complete repentance. We know from the book of the book that Job was a righteous man, and that God even bragged about him to Satan. He was proclaimed righteous after his ordeal, and God blessed him. But even a righteous man is capable of nothing other than repentance when brought face to face with God. We are nothing. We are like the grass which comes and goes. Our only source of life is God. And like the children's catechism says, He made us and He takes care of us. And this is why we should glorify Him. Now thankfully, even though Adam sinned and brought death and vanity to this place, God has still interceded on our behalf and provided a reconciliation for us. He has placed eternity in our hearts. Life here is not static, but God is stable. If you want to make sense of what goes on around you, you must turn to God and ask Him for His purpose in all of the smoke and mirrors. God is our beacon and our lighthouse. Turn to Him. Read His Word. Pray to Him. Sing to Him. Praise Him. Love Him. And glorify Him. If you want a, a life with purpose, you must live for Him. And the Gospel of Jesus Christ makes that possible. Jesus died to show you how to die to yourself. And Jesus lives to show you what that is like. If you won't turn from the vanity that is life on this earth, you will pass away with it. But God is eternal. And so is his free gift, eternal life. This table is for all who are baptized Christians, members of Christ in his body, the church. By eating the bread and drinking the wine with us, you proclaim your hope in the sovereign mercy of God and your trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.